Shift presents Rights of the Renouncer, an audiobook serial podcast by Benjamin Camphouse. Chapter 6 The machines ran Owen through batteries of tests, verifying that it was him I had brought back, and not some information doppelganger of my own creation, or some agent of the other. I shared their concern for the latter when I discussed my encounter. To the extent that we could spy inside his brain, everything seemed to be in order. All they or I could do beyond that was wait and watch. I had been asleep, or at least in my doctored variant of it, for 16 hours. I felt an asymmetry of rest. My body ached with disuse, longed for movement, while my mind was still taxed and listless. I was tending to both by pacing in circles in the room where Owen was now being monitored. The movement seemed to settle both my physical and mental needs, freeing my brain to process the words being spoken. I don't understand. How has it been over 30 years? Just yesterday. Is this really me? Owen's disbelief, his voice quiet and higher-pitched than matched his appearance, the effect of vocal-fold atrophy from long disuse and aging. There were uneven breaks in the sound. The muscles that moved his tongue and his memories had not changed together. This was a teenager trying to produce speech as a 50-year-old man without having grown accustomed to small adjustments over the intervening time. I know, it's a lot to take in. I glanced at one machine's display, a sphygmomanometer from the numbers, tracking a steady small increase in blood pressure since Owen's return. No doubt one of the body's signs that it again possessed a concerned occupant. I turned to look out the window in his room, could see the dim light catching on waves flowing in that river by which we had grown up. I guess this is shock, Owen paused, obviously in thought. I don't even know how to begin feeling anything else. It's okay, Owen. It will take time. Time that I have less of, 30 years. I saw that with my own eyes in the mirror, can see it now, can feel my own skin sagging, aches here and there I know I never had before. He sighed. I know, I'm not showing much gratitude. I can't even process what you did yet or how you did it. That part isn't important, nor is any thanks. I just wish I'd felt ready sooner. I continued looking out the window, the river running its course in that half-light the glimmer of the city occasionally casting an unnatural red or yellow on the water. I wasn't yet processing what I'd done either, just breathing, watching. Owen was nodding slowly. It hurts to talk. A pause. Please stay as long as you want, Victor. I took him up on that as best I could, making us both tea, sitting with him for another hour. I walked to a respite room for the occasional hospital volunteers that the machines had reserved for me in order to go over my thoughts. To think about all that had transpired and what may next occur, what I could possibly hope to learn or do for the other untethered. From there I began to compose this account. I could not shake the feeling that I was guilty of something terrible, something that had brought the other to me. I had committed the most ancient of sins, hubris thinking I could venture unharmed into the domain of the dying, to succeed where Gilgamesh and Orpheus had failed, or achieved at best partial victories. Would my own victory there turn out to be Pyrrhic? I could not say, I still cannot say. The core. The creature's concern had leaked through along with this secret, 
creature. Was that the right word for the other? I thought over its manifestation in the dream world. Maybe Viscano's dream world was identical in some respects to our simulations. Perhaps this was all that the other's kind had remaining of their existence. Our own species certainly has imagined such an alternate reality, our bodies lying dormant and our minds active, or our own disembodied intellect being encoded in machine form, a transmigration of souls supplanting our own reality here in the physical realm with a virtual one. What could be at Viscania Prime's core? Was core even the correct decoding of what the creature had thought? I had only pulled tiny pieces of understanding out of the other. If I was right and the creature had let slip, or rather, failed to hide from me, that something deep inside the planet was the source of the dream world, how could it have even come to be there? Was it the creature itself? Was its source biological or some artifice, or a hybrid thereof? Had it predated the planet, the world built around the core through some unimaginably powerful technology? How could it withstand the heat and pressure? Viscania Prime's core was fully opaque to us, its presence inferred, as with Earth's, merely from the planet's mass and seismic waves as the machine's instruments had been able to measure them. Its seismic activity was much less than Earth's, though it still possessed a weak magnetic field, much like the uninhabitable but similarly tidally locked planet Mercury near the sun of the Sol system. Its crust was thicker than Earth's, the outer mantle cooler, but further investigation still seemed out of reach. Eventually, if the machines attempted to drill down, they would contend with impenetrable heat and pressure. If there was conflict with the other, it would be a much smaller project to abandon this system and start over elsewhere. It was easier to venture further into deep space than inside one rocky planet. My thoughts turned to the other. Only I had experienced that being. Owen had no memory of it, but he had not been in a state for his brain to encode durable memories for some time. Was my experience of the other authentic? I thought about what possible arguments against this might be. It might have been the result of being overwhelmed, taking on simultaneous conscious and unconscious tasks as I had for so long. My cortisol levels were quite high. My adrenaline was far from having fully tapered. But I did not and do not think I would have manufactured such an experience. I cannot express in words what an alien feeling it was. I have explored many mind states in my training and wanderings in the dream world. Nothing ever felt like that. My language, my manner of phrasing, my experience, they might give rise to a belief that there are suitable human analogies of thought and feeling for having been enveloped by the other. Do not let that mislead you. Do not mistake my account, the best that I could craft in my limited time, for the experience that led me to author it. What had it tried to convey to me, or tried to keep from me, about our entry to the dream world? I can offer some half-interpretation. If I accept what the creature assumed and struggled to state, that there is no difference between information and physical reality, perhaps even that portion that we believe gives rise to consciousness, then to go about our waking lives, outside of the dream world or other realms that may be like it, is to be in some configuration of information that is subject to gimbal lock, our minds may be embedded in a higher dimensional space, but limited by some constraint of our mental configuration from moving freely in each of those dimensions. Our modulation between waking and dreaming, this higher order neural shift of states, is like introducing a new axis of rotation, forcing previously parallel axes apart, allowing for new possibilities of orientation and motion. On Earth, there is no dream world. 
When moving through and feeling around in those new possibilities, whatever information entity we as conscious beings may be, there is nothing to find there. And so rather than recording memories of a coherent experience while sleeping, we get a mixture of random noise, the residue of alterations in motivation and priorities, marginally coherent story fitting, and the like. There is no dominant signal for our recall to recover. How had the other regarded me in those moments? With genuine fear, I think. Some part of my brain was still decoding that reflexive alien flow. Could I call it emotion? Even if my raw sensory input was mediated there, I felt the proximal part, that interface in my brain directly in front of my conscious experience. That portion still had to make sense of its inputs in a human way. It was difficult to separate that alien sense of being from my interpretation, but to some extent I must take the end result just as it was, as we must all do with our own thoughts and perception. How should I regard the other? The creature's concern aside, very little else had leaked through, about its motive, its goals, its relation to others. I didn't know if the other was utterly defenseless in the waking world, if it somehow had a body or weak part of itself in or near the core, or if it was bound up in the projection of the dream world. Could it summon an army, some armada from the stars, dispatch the machines and destroy our small settlement? Did it have the means to undermine the basic subsistence and water supply on which we depended? Or was it vulnerable? Was the planet's energy different than the machine's models had predicted? If the dream world's source could be unmasked and disrupted, would that be the last of the other and maybe its kind? Its kind. I had wondered at first if it might have been solitary, like an intensely territorial creature that felt only animosity towards others of its species, who were all enemies or competitors. If it lived alone in the dream world, with a portion it staked as its claim there. But counter to this, in that mix of impressions of which I'd been awash, I'd gotten the distinct sense of shame. Again, it could have been my own interpretation, but other feelings had not mapped so cleanly onto human emotion. I was still working to make sense of them. And what creature feels shame if its stature or obligation to others of its kind doesn't matter to its own survival in some way? It also did not much care to be observed by me at all. Was it predator or prey? Both roles could confer that distaste in some sense. Both instincts had shaped humanity. We were given to sudden urges to run, to hide, and not be seen. But also we were an indisputable apex predator, hoping at times to catch our prey unaware, a careless destroyer of many other species. The earth, as we have all been taught, still bears the scars of having borne us. In that creature's mind there was fear. It had mastered what bravado it had to confront me there, to assume a superiority of being, and it was at home in the dream world. That much was not questionable, but I also knew I must be as alien to it as it was to me. Given that the dream world was its home, my facility there, hard-earned as it was, the threat it implied would be heavy. I had come there with a directness that deserved fear, like a shorebird diving into the ocean with ease, plucking out an unsuspecting fish. What reason would the bird have to envy the fish's gills? Why should a sea-dweller look on any such transient with more than suspicion? Our conflicting ways of being, we humans and the other. I had to be careful not to lose perspective. How should I feel towards the creature? I accept that it, he, she, or V, is a conscious being. 
The things it felt and thought, even if artificial, I don't believe they could have been manufactured by something without a conscious mind. The dream world itself, for that matter. It could possibly be the creation of some material computation, but no blind guessing could lead to such a structured experience, alien as it was. The creature felt fear. For fear to have any bite, then pain, loss, and other such feelings would be within its experience as well. So it was capable of suffering. I felt an immediate obligation in this, to spare it such suffering if I could. I am not naive. I know not all creatures live socially in communities, feel kindness and concern for others, or even that their happiness is caught up in some way with other beings. But I am one such creature. These communities and obligations, they are so fragile among our own humankind. Many have left that road before. There, at the edge of chaos, is peaceful coexistence, because every equal being is a veiled threat. Each human to another, no matter how tight the relationship, is a knife on the neck. Behind many decision points are suicide, murder, mutual annihilation. My intent at recovering information, as threatened as I felt in the moment, could have been seen as a deeply transgressive act. I could find my own human metaphors that could justify such an interpretation. Even on Earth, where creatures had evolved near each other, the social signals of one animal could encode the opposite meaning for another, the wag of a dog's tail versus a cat's. Had I incited a war? That push. If I was correct about Owen, he or I might have triggered a fear response, but the other dreamers, the children, did they similarly imply any kind of threat? I was doubtful. They might have transgressed, possibly being curious in the other's presence could have been such a transgression. But it had shown that curiosity toward me as well. If the investigation of another's thoughts was an aggressive act, it felt no such compulsion to avoid that aggression. If we had offended, it was not an offense given by any set of mutual expectations. We could not consent to being thrust involuntarily into a world of another's making, to be asked questions but given no answers in return not as a community, not as a species. Whatever the other is, whatever threat is implied or opportunity there may be to make amends, we have to investigate, to learn all we can. And so I have laid down this account in a rush. My own experience, fragile thing that it is, I cannot leave it only in my mind. It may be the only evidence of an alien encounter we have come across on any world, for all I know, my mental record of that experience is one or more dreams away from certain destruction. I would hope for an understanding with the other or others, or excluding that, a longer stalemate. But I cannot mistake my hopes for rational expectations. Nor will I seek to escape the dream world or force the subdued experience I might have on Onary Station and thereby see to my own safety. Because the other untethered are still here, all around me on their ward in this hospital. I am on the surface and will remain here. I will not abandon them. Owen was but one dreamer saved. Now I am at the end of being kept awake with chemical assistance, up against the edge of compromising my own clarity and alertness, and I dare not venture into the dream world again without them. When the time comes, I will fall asleep and enter that place. And that alien, and perhaps others of its kind, now know of me, and I know of them. Guess as I might, I don't know what will happen, but the time is near.
This account is the final and only long-form work of Victor Goto, the first renouncer of Oneri Station. Over the next two months, Victor journeyed back into the dream world each night, searching for more of the untethered. He left only a few notes from that time. These concerned the immediacy of his mission, comments on his mental states, possible tweaks to the chemicals the machines pumped into him, and their appropriateness for his strategies. Types of memories that worked better than others as anchors in rebuilding minds. The sounds, smells, and rhythms of the bodies of the untethered and how they could provide clues for finding traces of the missing occupant. During that time, he returned 14 of those dreamers to their bodies. In that final rescue, his mind did not return to his body. It is not known if he encountered the other again or what became of him or it. No other dreamer has reported any encounter like the one he details in his account nor has anyone on Viscania Prime become untethered since. My name is Elisa Han, and I was the last untethered that he saved. At that time, I was only a girl of twelve. I have no memory of what scattered and dispersed my mind in the dream world, though I still feel the renouncer's work in me, holding in his own mind all the parts that comprised me, crafting me once again into a self, shaping me so that I would fit back into the vessel of my own body. I and several of the others he brought back saw to the return of his body to a Neri station after he failed to come back in the following years. There we became his fellow renouncers, sitting with him, tending his garden, and studying the detailed notes he took during his training, hoping to master his techniques or our own variations of them. Eventually Victor's body passed at the age of 61, having succumbed to the pancreatic cancer to which we now know all of his generation were susceptible. We have carried on our training in his absence, hoping one or more of us will soon be able to return to the surface of Escania Prime and continue his work. Rights of the Renouncer novella is out in Kindle and paperback formats now. The album, The Scania Prime, and the EP, Rights of the Renouncer, are available on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream music. Thanks for listening.